Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello and welcome to Cross Section, where we bring you conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Today I'm joined by regular Alicia Edmund and also joining us today is David Smith, who's the head of our Northern Ireland team for the Evangelical Alliance. Peter Linus is off uh, busy in Devon, I believe, right now, but because the main story we're going to be looking at today is around Northern Ireland and around the changes that have happened this week and the likely resumption of the executive in Northern Ireland. We thought it was really important to have our man on the ground with us today to bring us all the information and all that we need to know about everything that's been going on. But first of all, last week we talked about the traitors and how it was coming to its conclusion. Alicia, did the finale go how you thought it would? Absolutely, it did. Not a surprise. A part of me hoped in lifetime that Molly would see correctly and sever ties in that moment with um who was the winner hey you might not have seen it but no it did go exactly as I planned I thought Jazz played an awesome game but unfortunately he came out on the losing side yes he was the person who just wasn't ever believed he had the answers but probably didn't have the conviction to stand them up David what did you think of it yeah, so I jumped on maybe midway through the series. My wife was a keen watcher, but it was fascinating. And I think as a viewer, you're watching what is a game show taking place. Uh, it's a competition. And, you know, it, it's a bit like Love Island or any other game show, but it's based on real relationships or it's based on relationships that psychologically we can't help but falling into building truth and trust among each other. And whenever you see people playing a game, there's something inherently, as a human being, you go, no, hang on, this this is a game, but it's a relationship, and it messes with your mind. So I, I found it fascinating. It was very entertaining. I think Harry played an excellent game. And you could see the tension and the turmoil almost within himself at various points at being a traitor and doing a really great game, but also feeling like he was betraying people. So... Yeah, just a fascinating psychological exercise. It really is interesting. And he definitely held it together. And you can see at that last moment, he knew what he needed to do to push it over the line. And and I've had a few conversations this week with Christians about whether he was showing a lack of integrity or whether it is just a game. In my mind, I think they all went into it knowing that some people are traitors. Some people are trying to betray them. Uh, And I've likened it to one of those murder mystery parties where you know someone has got the card that says they're the murderer. You know that they are trying to present a different face. And as David, as you just said, we're trying to build relationships. But in that context, you're doing so in a way where you don't ever trust anyone completely. And actually, whereas hopefully in our day-to-day interactions, we are able to build relationships that are built on trust, where we do trust people to be speaking the truth. So to the stories that we're going to be looking at this week, um, first of all, perhaps an an unnoticed report from the Women and Equalities Committee of the UK Parliament. Alicia, why don't you fill us in? 
Yes, so it's part of uh, an ongoing series that the Women in Equalities Committee has been looking into preventing violence against women and girls uh, and kind of exploring the wider culture of mistreatment, harassment, sexual violence. Uh, and so this current report is around misogyny in the music industry and in particularly looked at and had evidence sessions from former artists, from kind of those in the production side, those that were front facing, some familiar names, DJs, BBC DJ. Annie McManus, as well as Rebecca Ferguson and Ellie Golding in terms, terms of talking about their experiences of women being in the music industry and how the sexualization of either them, their music or the creation of music has been really challenging. And so it's quite a difficult report to read, but it's that ongoing conversation that we're having of the different experiences that women face in different sectors of life, whereby their womanhood is somewhat exploited and they're experiencing higher rates of sexual violence and harassment as a result, and what could be done both at government level and society level to address that. So this is almost, this is part of the wider Me Too movement. What are the lessons that we can learn from it and think about in a church context? I think for us, it's that continued reality that we are nowhere near the new Jerusalem, which is speaking about where all relationships will be made new, where there is not just equality in name, but the experience between men and women are one of respect and honor. I guess as a church community and people of faith, it shows us the reality that some women experience, not just in a professional context, but there has been many reports over the year following the Me Too movement particularly in the UK, that the experience of 97% of women by the age of 18 to 24 have experienced some form of sexual harassment. And so the reality for the young girls and younger women and through to adulthood is somewhat being viewed as an object. It's an opportunity for us as followers of faith, both women and men, to think about how do we honour the other person in our midst, respect them in a way whereby we're not uh, seeing them as just a sexualized object. And this morning, whilst I was in uh, London slightly earlier, I went to uh, Gales for a pre-coffee before the working day. And there was this boy and I was like, what a beautiful picture of how young it can start. So this mum is on the school run, the mother and the daughter sat at the table and the boy has gone and collect the drinks. He took the chair out for his mum and his sister he was having honest conversation the mum was teaching him about kindness and respect and I'm like it really does start young there's a great opportunity to see whether you're a parent or your investment in the younger generation of how do you honor uh, the other person in your midst how do you treat them with respect how do you show kindness because those traits live on in and throughout adulthood Thank you. And that this is something that we're continuing to talk about as it's continuing to crop up in so many different sections of society and our life. Uh, so to our major story that we're going to be looking at this week, Northern Ireland has a brighter future. Rishi Sunak has declared, apparently, recording this on Thursday when Parliament should be passing the legislation that will see the Northern Ireland executive restored for the first time in two years. David, why don't you tell us what's been going on? Well, I will do my best, Dungy. As many, many of our listeners know, 
politics in Northern Ireland is a bit like fishing in that nothing happens for a long time and then there's some quite dramatic tense moments that, that and, and something may change, you may you may catch something. So in, in Northern Ireland, um it's worth saying we've had a devolved assembly for twenty-five years, but that actually for half of that time we have not had a devolved assembly. They haven't been able to agree to sit together and rule. So when it comes to devolved politics and just experience, we are probably 12 and a half years behind Scotland and Wales, just in terms of the length of time um, that we have uh, people ruling. So there's that deficit of sort of political capital there. Also, just contextually, and again, listeners will know, but just a reminder, everything in Northern Ireland, I suppose, is framed around the constitution and the context of sort of 50 years or 30 years of troubles from about 1969 to 1998. And while we're 50 years on from the start of the Troubles and 25 years on kind of from the end of it, um, what, what we saw in that period was three and a half thousand people lost their lives. Many thousands more were injured. Uh, and the sense of trauma and intergenerational trauma and loss has rippled down through the years. Bringing us more up to date from Brexit, Northern Ireland has been the sticking point um, for both the EU and the UK as we've tried to figure out how goods move across from Northern Ireland into the South and from Northern Ireland into the uh, GB. And um, Northern Ireland's found itself with this uh, international border, which it, it has with the Republic of Ireland, and now an internal border that was sort of created, I suppose, between Northern Ireland and the UK. And that's what the Windsor framework was about, trying to resolve that. And it was ultimately that that led to Stormont collapsing uh, about sort of 21 months ago. So what we saw was a period of stagnation. And then in the last few weeks, you'll have maybe noticed a mood change. Those who have been following this story, things began to change. And then in the last few days, really dramatic scenes. So the DUP... Had, had clearly done a lot of work internally. They put a deal to their 12-party executive. Journalists are saying that seven out of the 12 people were in favour of that deal, so enough to proceed. Then, then it was put to 120 members of a wider executive, and it was at this meeting that um, details were leaked out, apparently by someone wearing a, a wire. Uh, that was then live-tweeted, so this private, sensitive precarious meeting was being live tweeted by um, a political commentator on the outside um, who was very, very much against the deal and was putting pressure on Jeffrey Donaldson, the leader of the DUP from the outside. So it's been a really dramatic number of days. But what we now have effectively is a deal between the, the DUP and the UK government. Seems like the assembly will be up and running if the legislation's passed today and it could sit as early as Saturday. So you said that only seven out of 12 of the DUP executive agreed to this. Is that something that's going to cause further problems, do you think, in the years and months to ahead? ahead? Well, it's worth saying that any political party will have divisions and it's very hard to achieve huge consensus or unity around really difficult, sensitive issues. And the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, their reason d'etre is to maintain the union. And it's also worth saying that as a unionist party that has a lot of British nationalists in it, loyalists, when you have achieved your political aim, which is the existence of the union, and your goal is to maintain that union, then anything that comes that could, your, your default posture is really one of defence. 
because you're trying to maintain a political goal that you have already achieved. And that's why you'll see a lot of defensive politics being played out by the DUP and within unionism more broadly. The DUP is a right of centre party. There's a lot of big figures, big personalities, listeners may remember Ian Paisley, who founded the party. And so maintaining unity within this is difficult. So my sense is that the party is divided on this. They are trying to come together to get behind the deal and go over the line. But divisions this deep will not disappear quickly. And I would say watch this space for how that ripples out in the, the days and months ahead. There's a, a quote from DUP MP Sammy Wilson. This is a result of this spineless, weak-kneed, Brexit-betraying government refusing to take on the EU and its interference in Northern Ireland. So yes, we, we might have some fun ahead. Uh, Alicia, what's been your reaction to this going on in the last few days? I did wonder when the, the Brexit word was going to be brought up in that, and it's Sammy Wilson that raises that. I guess for me, since I've been in the team and the organisation, Northern Ireland isn't naturally in my news feed being from London stroke Essex and just hearing how the team have had to engage for two years without a functioning government. I think at times within England, we think we haven't had a functioning government, but nonetheless, it's still been able to pass a budget, legislate, deliberate, have conversation. And, and I guess it's, there's a human cost that has taken place without Stormont sitting, without an executive being able to address the ongoing challenge of the cost of living crisis. More recently, the public sector strikes that took to the streets in Northern Ireland, the ongoing health challenges that Northern Ireland, as well as other parts of the UK face. And so for me, it's been really, Northern Ireland's been on my prayer list more often in the last two years because I work with the team, because I've seen the challenges of how do you do advocacy in this space and seeing how the church has stepped up and filled the gap in many ways in supporting the most vulnerable without a functioning executive. David, one of the unusual features of Northern Ireland is the power sharing agreement and this hopeful resumption of the of the executive will see Sinn Féin take the role of First Minister for the first time. How big of an event is that? Yeah, this is a huge moment. So again, power sharing executive is an unusual way to rule. It was necessary given our historical context and the mistrust between unionists and nationalists. So it was agreed that um, there would be mandatory power sharing. So we don't have a government that is um, effectively formed by the willing. It is um, mandatory that the biggest unionist party and the biggest nationalist party share power together, which is why when one of those parties don't want to go into government, we, we don't have a government. So there's a lot of calls for reform around that, but for sure this is a big moment. This is the first time that we will have a Sinn Féin uh, first minister the first and deputy first minister are maybe misleading terms. They're actually joint first ministers in power. As, as we used to say, uh, one can sort of uh, order paper clips without the other. Now, that's, that's not technically true, but they are equivalent in power. But symbolically for Sinn Féin to, to hold the first minister position, so their leader, Michelle O'Neill in the north, she will be the first minister um, in Northern Ireland with a DUP minister as, as the deputy. And that is a significant moment. I mean, again, those who have lived through the troubles and um, seen the progression of Sinn Féin um, 
from basically um, an adjacent IRA political expression to political party that now has considerable power and influence right across the island of Ireland. Um, this is an extraordinary moment. So, David, for you and for the team, and perhaps for Northern Ireland more generally, what are the big issues on the inbox for the Northern Ireland executive if it does get up and running as soon as this weekend? Yeah, well, one of the first things we like to see is the executive looking at devolution and power sharing because we don't want a return to dysfunctional devolution again. So we've just done some research and 80% of the population in Northern Ireland and 80% of evangelicals, because we poll both, agree or strongly disagree that now is the time to reform the Northern Ireland Assembly to bring about more transparency, stability and accountability. So there's definitely an appetite for reform and making the institution work better. What are some of the other issues that, that you are going to be working with? Yes, sorry, Danny, I think I cut off there momentarily. <laughs> sorry about um, that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so reform of the Assembly and the way it works is, is sort of priority number one. Uh, listen, for the last few years, key decisions have just been put on ice. So uh, our waiting lists uh, have got to a crisis level. The health system, it is fair to say, is really struggling. Um, education budgets, these are not um, fancy bells and whistles services. This is education, health, infrastructure, lots of key decisions just have not been made. And the last time we didn't have an executive, some civil servants uh, and permanent secretaries took decisions that a uh, subsequent court case found they should not have taken. So this time round, there's been a lot more caution from the civil service and key decisions just have not been, been taken. So budgets for health, for education, for infrastructure spending are top of the agenda. This week, my colleague Danielle gathered together um, around 100 people in the room, uh, which represented uh, about 35, 40 Christian ethos organizations who were coming together in an anti-poverty coalition. That issue is going to be um, top of the agenda as well for many um, voluntary and community groups, because the cost of living crisis has bitten even deeper here without a government to provide strategy um, and direction as to how we might tackle it. So poverty, health, education, huge issues and very urgent ones as well. Well, there's a significant load on your inbox as there is on the Northern Ireland executive and it is vital that we we pray for you pray for Northern Ireland pray for the politicians who will be resuming their posts in the executive it's not they haven't been doing anything in the last few years but in this new phase hopefully so we will continue to pray and that is vitally important and we would encourage you our listeners to pray as well Thank you for listening to Cross Section. I apologise if we've had any connectivity issues. We'll get to one final story in just a moment. Hopefully you've been able to follow what we've been saying despite a couple of unscheduled pauses in contributions. But do follow Cross Section on your chosen podcast channel. Give us a like, review us, and let us know what you're thinking and what you want us to talk about. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as the Evangelical Alliance and on X. I still can't quite get used to not calling it Twitter. Uh, we're EA UK News. And please email us at cross.section at eauk.org.
Well, one one final thing we're going to look at today is how the government communicates. And that might seem like a rather grand, wide-ranging topic, but it's been in focus this week with Scottish ministers in front of the COVID inquiry. And at the centre of that has been how they communicate, WhatsApp messages that have been retained or deleted, conversations that have taken place on private channels that should have been on government channels. Uh, Alicia, why does this matter so much? Well, I guess in the context of the UK COVID inquiry is wanting to understand the decision making that took place within the highest roles and uh, offices of responsibility, both in the Scottish government. I know that they'll be doing moving on and having similar conversations with ministers and politicians in the Senate. So it most definitely is important. There is a lot of learnings that need to be made and taken forward in terms of the role of government in times of crisis. And I think it's fair to say whilst we're only four years or so on from the pandemic there's still much that we need to learn and I guess in particular for the Scottish government where it's relevant is how it impacts on Humza Youssef in terms of his time as kind of uh, cabinet secretary under the leadership of first minister Nicola Sturgeon but also how it impacts him now as the first minister is he complicit in any of the poor decision making and how does that then impact his ability to govern with integrity in this season so it's highly important. And with the SNP we've we've had the the added drama of the the change in leadership in the last few years and some of the internal fighting within the party that has a, a further spotlight has been shone on some of that through what's been going on and what's been perhaps seen through some of those messages david you mentioned the the leaking of a private meeting is it important that politicians can communicate in secret that can have these kind of private conversations Yeah, I think there's a big difference between privacy and secrecy. And I think there's absolutely a place for privacy among colleagues as they're discussing very, very sensitive things. And if government was just a live stream of consciousness coming out with everything, all the information that they kind of are getting in real time, I can imagine that would sort of lead to chaos and anarchy. If government doesn't communicate well, though, leads to a lot of suspicion and in an age of resurgence of conspiracy theories. I think government needs to be very, very careful. I think there should be a high degree of transparency in order to build trust, but there should be space for private sensing of conversations to happen, to decide when is the right moment to communicate with the general public about particular issues. So one sort of thought that just came to me was a news story last week about the head of the army talking about the possible need for conscription or national service within the UK. And one of the points that was put back on that was that may or may not happen in future, but actually there's a timing and a comms issue as to how you bring the population with you and blurting it out or just saying it in an unapproved way may not be helpful. So I do think we should trust our politicians to a degree to be able to have private conversations, but I am naturally maybe sceptical and and think we err to the side of the public should know what our elected officials are doing and saying when it comes to uh, a legal inquiry. I think there's a really fine line between ensuring sufficient transparency so decisions are trusted and understood but also taking away the space for consideration of options so sometimes something will be leaked about a policy proposal and it 
might have been a proposal, someone might have suggested it, but you don't know how seriously it was suggested. But because someone wrote something or said something about a possible option, suddenly it's, oh, the government is considering doing this outrageous thing. So I think there is a space for the government to consider a wide range of things and to talk about that without public scrutiny. But we have such a low level of trust in elected officials that people are inclined to think the worst of them. They are inclined to think that they're working behind their backs, they have nefarious motives perhaps, or they're just in it for electoral gain, or they're going to do something that we don't want them to do. So that trust means that actually we probably need a higher level of transparency in what they're doing. But that then potentially hinders their ability to operate. One other aspect on this is how the government communicates publicly. David, you talked about finding ways to communicate well with the public, and that was that was really key during COVID. How is our government or our governments speaking to us and helping us to understand what's being done and why it's being done? Uh, so there was some, I think, amusement possibly this week when Rishi Sunak uh, gave an exclusive to Lab Bible. Alicia, what did what did he say to Lab Bible? Well, for those listeners that think Lad Bible is something linked to Christianity, to confirm it is not. It is a kind of a gaming, streaming, social media platform that has, I think within a month, they they boast at least 69 million views of a key demographic, which is those Gen Z age group. And so he came out and he announced exclusively, he didn't go to the BBC or ITV, he went to Lad Bible to announce the government's new plans to crack down on vaping that impacts young people and children. And so did a, a very short video that was streamed and showed on their platform supplemented with a news article in a hope to engage directly the age group that that policy will impact from a kind of PR comms point of view. I think that's very important. Engage the audience that you're wanting to speak to. But the backlash of that is that many have viewed this as a stunt to uh, woo and to maybe influence a younger generation that the Conservative Party is someone who they should be voting for longer term. And so that that theme of distrust, questioning the motives, seeing this as a disingenuous uh, moment when in fact it is informing a key constituency that the government don't naturally engage well on their normal platforms of press statements or their own kind of websites. So yeah, that's the current t- topic this week. And I think we will see more of this. We are in an election year. I say that with some confidence that there will certainly be an election in the next 12 months. And I'm very confident it will come uh, before Christmas this year. If I'm wrong, well, I'll just be humiliated uh, to the listeners of cross section. But I think as we move towards the election, we'll be hearing more from the the government, from the Conservative Party, but also opposition parties as they seek to communicate to the sections of the electorate that they want to gather support from. And I think one of the challenges and the jobs for us is to listen and to watch, but also to uh, give that scrutiny, to say, what are they saying? Why are they saying this? What are they trying to communicate? How are they trying to win our votes? And what does that mean for us? I think as we come to a close for this episode of Cross Section, I think it's important for us to focus in on the need for honesty and integrity in all of our communications, whether it's we're going back to what we started with, talking about the traitors, about how are we honest in all of our interactions so that what we look like in public life is the same as what we are in private life. Does 
when WhatsApp messages are released? If our WhatsApp messages are released, what would that communicate? How are we acting with integrity? So we're not necessarily saying the same things in public as we say in private. There is a space, as David said, for privacy sometimes in our interactions. But how are we acting with integrity in all that we do? And as we look towards a coming election, as we think about what politicians are saying, how can we encourage them to speak truthfully? How can we build a culture of trust in public life that uh, gives us confidence in what politicians are trying to do? So that we aren't naive about what politicians are saying, but nor are we um, so critical. We don't give them any space to speak and to communicate. So as we finish, let's think about that. Let's pray for those who are in positions of authority, particularly in Northern Ireland this weekend and these coming weeks, but also for all of our politicians in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you for listening. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.